Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. On from Elijah in the Old Testament, we're moving all the way to the New Testament many, many years later, and we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this was because there are actually a lot of similarities between John the Baptist and Elijah. In fact, Jesus said this about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. He said, you see this up on the screen, he said, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So, so Jesus is saying there's this very there's, there's a lot of similarities between John and Elijah. There, he says John, in some ways, is playing the same role as Elijah. And the religious leaders, the people of Israel, the people that Jesus was talking to, they would have been very familiar to Elijah. In some ways, he was a hero of the faith to them. And Jesus is saying John is playing a similar role to Elijah. It's almost like he's the second coming of Elijah. And there are a lot of similarities between the two. Both Elijah and John the Baptist would, had the boldness to speak truth to a corrupt power structure. And both John the Baptist and Elijah called God's people back to God. And were trying to awaken them from going in a direction that was not honoring God. Just, just as a heads up, we're going to be all over Matthew, Luke, and John today, the Gospel of John. We're going to be all over the place. So if you're like, where's one place to camp out? You're going to have to try to write down as we move because John's life gets mentioned in all, in all of those Gospels, and so we're going, to, we're going to be jumping all over the place. But one of the ways we see the most clear similarities between John and Elijah is in this passage in Luke chapter 3 when John says this. He, he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the foot of the tree, so every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." John's message here is very similar to Elijah's. Elijah came along and he was saying to Israel, he's saying, hey, how long are you going to, you know, be indecisive here? How long are you going to say God or Baal? He's like, no, come worship the true God. And Elijah turns Israel back to God. And, and John the Baptist comes along and he's saying, hey, and you guys might think you're special because you're connected to uh, Abraham. You're a part of this family. But if you're just concerned about like being connected to Abraham or your religious practices and structures, there's a lot more to faith than that. And John says, you know, it, 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 it's actually about bearing fruit and becoming a different kind of person and making a difference. And, and, and he's letting them say what, what you're experiencing now, just because you're connected to Abraham, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily special. It's actually something much more important. It's to bear fruit, to be different, to allow God to transform your life. And so John is speaking to the people, it start bearing fruit, and it's something that Jesus would eventually say later on in his ministry as well as he would talk about bearing fruit. John and Elijah are both, because John would call out Herod, who was a corrupt power structure, just as Elijah called out Ahab. They're both speaking truth to power, and they're both calling God's people back to God. Now, I wanted to take a look at John's life today as he's calling Israel back to God and he's preparing the way for Jesus. But before we dig in more to John, I want to do something a little fun here for a moment. I want you to think about 
maybe one of your favorite sitcoms or shows even now, or maybe one of your favorite growing up, one of your favorite shows, one of your favorite sitcoms, and then think about one of your favorite characters. And then I want you to think about, did any of your favorite characters in this show, in this sitcom, ever have a catchphrase? Something that they would say frequently. Let me give you a few examples. For those of you who maybe you watched television quite some time ago, maybe 40 plus years ago, a popular catchphrase would be from a character by the name of Fonzie on Happy Days. He would look in the mirror when he'd do his hair and he would say, I'll try to do this, but I'm not as cool as the Fonz. And for those of you who are like under 30 or 40, you're like, who's the Fonz? It's okay. We're, we're going to get to some references for you in just a moment. But Fonz would look in the mirror and he'd go, hey, you know, he was always impressed with the way he looked. That was kind of his catchphrase. That was his thing. That's what he'd say. There was another show that was a spinoff of Happy Days called Mork and Mindy. And Robin Williams in this show played a alien, uh, Mork, and he would, he would say, he would shake people people's hands like this. And does anybody remember what he would say when he would do that? Anybody? Yes, Nanu Nanu. There is somebody new. He'd say Nanu Nanu. I think that was my Aunt Mary, by the way. Good job. He would say Nanu Nanu. And that's how that was, he would say that all the time. That was his catchphrase. Okay, we'll, we'll move a little bit forward now. In the 90s, there was a show called Full House. And Michelle, yes, yeah, some people like that. Michelle Tanner, her character would frequently say, you Got it, dude. Anybody remember that? When she'd say, you got it, dude. She'd give the thumbs up. Anybody remember this? Yes. Okay. Some people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Michelle Tanner. Or maybe some of you watched Family Matters when Steve Urkel would frequently say, did I do that? He'd always, you know, cause a big ruckus or break something. He'd say that. Or maybe some of you remember the greatest sitcom ever, Seinfeld. And Jerry, one thing that he would frequently say was... Hello, Newman. Over, and he said that, actually, he only ever said that 18 times throughout the course of the entire show. Throughout all 180 episodes, he only said that 18 times. But it was something, whenever he'd see Newman, he'd say, hello, Newman. And it's something that we know Jerry would say to Newman. These were catchphrases or things associated with these characters. Michael Scott on The Office had a catchphrase, but I'm not going to repeat it because it's not appropriate for church. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to talk about that right now. But different characters in different shows. And what do we do with these catchphrases? They, the character is associated with the catchphrase. The, we think of, when, they, when they say, oh, yeah, that makes sense to them. It says something about their character. It says something about who they are. And we connect with it. And we connect with the character through that phrase. And we like when they say it. We like when they say it over and over and over again because it speaks to who the character is. It's their catchphrase. Now, in real life, there have been historical figures who've had great impact throughout history. And as we come out of the sitcom world, as we come out of the television world, and we come into real life, there have been historical figures who've made really powerful statements. And these figures are now forever tied to these statements. Some of you can start thinking of these right now. Some of you might even have one of these statements put up in your office or on your phone or somewhere, and you, and you look at this and you're thinking that this statement gives me inspiration, what this person said, and their life is forever tied to this statement. And people who make these great statements and then their life also aligns with these statements, then it means even more. You know, sometimes people say something really great and then you find out, well, they really weren't living up to that statement. And you're like, that's a little bit of a disappointment, but it's still a good statement. I'll use it here and there. But there, there's some statements that have like shaped history or there's some statements that whenever you think of a person, you think of this statement that they made. Let me give you a few examples of this. Former President John F. Kennedy had this famous statement. He said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. 
I'm not a historian. I don't know a lot about President John F. Kennedy, but I do know this statement is attached to him and tied to him. Obviously, we know some other things surrounding his life, but I didn't know a lot about, you know, his policies or his platform or many things like that. But I do know this statement. This statement is frequently tied to him. Think about, you know, not just what others can do for you, but how can you do something for others to make a difference? This is what this statement, you start to think about that a little bit. Or this great statement from the religious leader, Mother Teresa, she said this, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. That's a powerful statement. That gets you thinking as well. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. How often do some of us, we just judge something about somebody based off of their outward appearance before we even have a chance to interact with them? And then are we really creating space to love them? Or for those of you who are really into sports, specifically hockey, you may know this statement from Wayne Gretzky. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. No, Michael Scott did not say that first. <laughs> you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. It's a challenging statement. It challenges us to persevere and to think, hey, could I do more? Should I, like, could, should I try more? Should I take a risk? And then as I was looking through these different statements and thinking about this, I, I, I was... I'm pretty convinced that this next statement, these, these four words, this is maybe the most powerful and moving statement, arguably the most powerful and moving statement that has been uttered in the past 100 years, that has been said publicly in the past 100 years. And this statement comes from Martin Luther King Jr., these four words, I have a dream. I have a dream. And then it was from this statement, it was a speech from, from Martin Luther King Jr. where he was challenging humanity to become a better people, to see others differently, to see others honestly in a way that Christ sees us. And this was, this was a challenging statement that was calling humanity to something better. Each one of these great statements from these figures, they, they challenge us to think differently. They challenge us to see the world differently. They challenge us to become better people. About things differently. And they oftentimes consider us, challenge us to think about others before we think about ourselves. And these statements are tied to these people forever. A lot of us, when you hear those statements, you think of those people. And just as those people that we looked at had a life statement, and many people have a life statement, or many people in television shows have a catchphrase or whatever it is, it's tied to them. John the Baptist had a very powerful statement that is forever tied to his life. And this statement, too, challenges us to be better. This statement challenges us to view the world in a different way. It was challenging the, the world of his time period 2,000 years ago to view the world in a different way, but it's also still today a challenge for you and me to see things differently. And this statement comes from John in John chapter 3. Now, John chapter 3 was written by John the Apostle, not John the Baptist, just for clarity. John the Apostle who followed Jesus. But this is from John chapter 3, verse 30. John the Baptist said this. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. Some of your translations might say something like, he must become greater, I must become less. 
This is John the Baptist's life statement. It's his catchphrase. It defines his life, his ministry, and everything that he was all about. That Jesus must become greater and I must become less. And this is a challenging statement for us today, but it's a statement that I believe. If we were to apply this statement and consider this statement... And, and, and really start to pray over this statement in our lives, where, how can Christ increase and I can decrease? We will begin to become a better people. We will become a better church. We will become better humans. We will love others better. And we will see God moving in our life in ways that we have never seen it happen before. So John's calling Israel to this as well. He's saying, hey, it's time to decrease and allow Christ to increase. Some of them are thinking, well, how, how do I decrease? How do I get out of the way so that Christ can increase? Well, I want to give you this Sunday are the three D's to decrease. I'm getting good with these alliterations again. I had the three S's for I've had enoughism last week. And this week we got the three D's to decrease. All right, the first one is this, different, to be different. If we, if we desire to be people who decrease so that Christ may increase, then we must be committed to living a different kind of life. I was having a conversation recently with a close friend of mine who was born and raised in church, went to church his entire life, all throughout his 20s, was very committed to the church, serving in the church, loved God, and then even into his early 30s, he was pretty committed to the church. But recently... About a year or two ago, he completely walked away from faith. He's walked away from church, and there are a number of reasons for that. But I, I talk to him about this a lot. I like learning from him and hearing where he's coming from. And one of the statements that he made to me just a couple of weeks ago when we were having a conversation was this. He said, Scott, I think that there's today less of a difference between people who attend church and people who don't attend church than there used to be. Basically saying people who attend church look more like people who don't attend church than they used to. And I, you know, there's different studies and opinions on that statement that he made to me. And, you know, I, I don't really have any data for that right now. But I think as a general observation, most people would say, yeah, you know what? People who go to church, you know, they, they don't look quite as different as they used to from people who don't go to church. It, 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 things have gotten to be a little bit more similar. And in some ways, that's actually like a really good thing. Because there almost used to be this expectations in churches of, you know, to, to be in church, you have, to, you have to look a certain way and you have to be presentable and you have to, you know, if you don't have a, a nice suit and tie, you may not feel welcome in church. And there, there used to be almost this facade of like, let's always just look great and good and awesome all the time. And then if people didn't feel like they could keep up that outward image, you know, maybe I'm not welcome in a place like church. So the fact that we've maybe shifted church to be a space in most cases, not in every case, but in most cases where people feel more like, hey, anybody's welcome. Anyone can come here. You don't have to look a certain way or act a certain way just to come and hear about Jesus. That's a good thing. That's something to celebrate. And so that, that, that's, that's a good distinction that's come up. And you might be saying, okay, in the outward appearance, but and, and here's the thing. Sometimes we get way too caught up with outward appearances. There are some churches that a guy like John the Baptist would not be welcome in. The scriptures tell us that John the Baptist was covered in camel's hair and eating wild locusts and honey. So he'd walk into some church and they'd be like, hey, we need to call security immediately. This man just walked in the door and I don't think we can have him here right now. 
He was a different kind of guy with his outward appearance. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about with different. And there's some ways in which maybe the church has changed or grown. And, and it might look a little bit more like there's less of a distinction, but that can be a good thing. There can also be some ways in which you could probably argue, well, yeah, there, there used to be character differences between people in the church and people outside of the church, but some of those character differences were actually like not always the best, and some of them were like a facade, and some of them were a misconception, and some of them were... So it's probably good that we've you know dropped the pose a little bit, and it's also probably good that we've changed some things because there were some things that the church has held as convictions in church history that really weren't biblical convictions and we needed to change. So some of this changing can be a good thing. But then there's another part of that observation that my friend was making to me that you do start to wonder a little bit on a character level, on a becoming like Christ level, sometimes I do think that we as the church are not allowing Christ to inform our convictions and who we are but instead we're allowing something or someone else to inform our convictions. I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about other things and we shouldn't be critical thinkers. I really think that we should actually be critical thinkers and think about other ideas and things. But there are some ways, and I see this sometimes where it's like, no, we've been called to live a different kind of life. And the type of life that Christ has called us to live is going to look different than other lifestyles. It just is. The type of life that Christ calls us to is going to be different. And John the Baptist had a great understanding of this. Because when John the Baptist jumps on the scene 2,000 years ago, there was a lot of attention surrounding John. People were coming to John and saying, Hey, are you a prophet? Hey, are you Elijah? Hey, are you the Messiah? Are you, are, you, are you that guy? And John the Baptist could have easily said, yeah, that's me, come follow me. There were enough people who were ready and willing to follow John. In fact, when you get to the book of Acts, you will see that the church comes across people who were still following John long after he died. And they're like, no, 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 no. John was here to tell people about Jesus. But John had some committed followers John could have easily given into all of the hype surrounding him and said, yeah, sure, come follow me. In fact, there was a prophecy about John in the Old Testament that John knew about. Look at this in John chapter 1, verse 23. He said, this is John, John the Baptist speaking, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. He's saying, yeah, I know, Isaiah the prophet talked about me. But he knew the role that he had to play. And he never tried to overstep that line, at least that we know of. He never tried to overstep that line and start to make things about him. We live in a time where the temptation is always, how can I get as many people to watch and see what I'm doing as possible? How can I get all eyes on me? How can I get the attention? How can people hear about me or know about me or know what I'm doing? How can people, people, people need to know, know, know about me, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. People got to know me, 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 me. I got to upload this. I got to let them know about that. I got to let people know about this. And there's such a temptation to just be pursuing fame at all costs, being noticed at all costs, just anything possible, just me, 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 me. And in the different life that Christ calls us to where he increases and we decrease is a life where we say, nope, it's not all about me. It's about him. 
It's about his kingdom, which means it's about others, not about me. This other scenario in John's life, in John chapter 3, verse 26 and 27, his followers come to him, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you, that's they're referencing Jesus, the Jesus guy who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, you know, the one you baptize and everything, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He said, they're like, John, we got a problem over here. That Jesus guy who you baptized, he's baptizing other people. This is serious. And John's like, this isn't a big deal. Because what's given to him has been given to him. And I'm okay with that. He wasn't viewing Jesus as competition. I love the way the New Living Translation translates John 3.26. It says, so John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. Can you believe this? People are getting baptized. This is horrible, John. We can't have any more of this. They're going to him instead of coming to us. That's a horrible thing. John's like, no, it's not. This is a reminder for us as the church. I know I've been saying this a lot lately, and we're actually going to go into a series next week where we talk about this some more. Other churches, they're, they're not our competition. We celebrate kingdom work that is happening all across Western New York. We celebrate kingdom work that is happening in our state. We celebrate kingdom work that is happening in our country and all across the world in other countries because other churches are not our competitors. Someone's getting baptized in another church. Praise be to he. Praise the Lord. You know, it's great stuff. You're not our competitors. That's why in our Say Yes to God season, which we're in right now from November 11th to December 18th, where we're praying and believing to raise $35,000 above and beyond, we're giving away 25% of that. Some of it's going to Eight Days of Hope. Some of it's going to another church called Garden Church. Why? Because we're not the only ones in this. There are other people, other churches, other communities doing kingdom work. And other, they're not our competitors. But this is true for everyday life as well, because you might be thinking, well, I never, you know, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. But, but how often in life do we just start to view other people as competition in our comparison, our comparing ourselves to them? Oh, you know, they, looks like they're a little bit ahead of me. It looks like they got an edge on me. How do I get the edge on them? It looks like, oh, they got, oh. They, they, and we're just constantly, oh man, how come their post got more likes than my post got? My post was about the same thing and I have more followers in them right now. And we're always competing and, and comparing ourselves to other people. How come they got noticed at work and I didn't get noticed? How come they got ahead and I didn't get ahead? How come the teacher likes them, but they don't like me? What is going on? And there's always this competition. We compete with our siblings. We compete with our friends. We compete with family members. And we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And that comparison trap is actually a competition trap. And we start competing. We stop viewing other people as people. We're viewing them as just beings to get ahead and put down so we can be elevated. And John was like, no, 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 no. That's not how to live this life. If we want to decrease so that he can increase, other people are not competition. In fact, I would say it this way. Other people are not our competition. Other people are our co-laborers or they have potential to be our co-laborers in the kingdom. Every person that you come across, every person that you interact with, they're one of two things. They're either one, 
a person who's following Christ, so they are a co-laborer in the kingdom. Yes, even if they go to a different church, they're still a co-laborer in doing what God has called us to do. They're a co-laborer. Or, if they're not following Christ, they have potential to be co-laborers. So we want to invite them into kingdom work. We want to invite them to be a part of what God is doing. Every single person we interact with is either a co-laborer in the kingdom or has the potential to be a co-laborer. Other people are not our competition. Other people have been invited to join God's movement and mission with us. And so we've been called to live a different kind of life where we are not always competing with others, where we're not drawing the attention to ourselves, but the attention is on Christ so that we can put the attention on others. It's a different kind of life. It's a different way of living. That's the first D to decrease. The second D to decrease is direction. Direction. This is a conversation that we keep coming back to here at New Story. But what is the direction of your life? What direction is your life moving in? What direction is your life moving? We talked about this in September where we had the, the chart where we had the cross at the center. The cross, at the, this is not a cross. The cross at the center. I said, is your life moving towards the cross or away from the cross? This isn't about having a bounded group. If you miss our centered church series, go back and watch that because it's the direction that we're moving in. We're not going to be a bounded group where some people are in or out. We're not going to be fuzzy where everyone's just doing whatever they want. Instead, the cross is at the center and it's about the direction of your life. Is your life moving in the direction direction of Christ and becoming more like Jesus, or is it moving away from the cross? What is the direction of your life? The direction of John the Baptist's life was always oriented towards Jesus. He was always moving towards Jesus and looking to Jesus. Before his great statement in John 3.30 that we started with, he said this in John 3.28 and 29. He said, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. You know what John is basically saying here? He's like, I am happy playing the role of the best man. He's, he's standing and looking at Christ with great joy. His life is always pointing towards. His eyes are always set on. He is always moving. His every activity and action it is moving towards the direction of Christ and, and making the way for Christ and in doing that, becoming more like Christ. What is the direction of your life? What is the direction of my life? And he's the ultimate best man standing at the wedding with his eyes on Jesus, just so excited for everything that Christ is doing. I've gotten to the point now, when I, when I do weddings, I typically will talk to the groomsmen beforehand. I usually don't have to talk to the bridesmaids about this, but I usually have to talk to the groomsmen and say, hey guys, I don't do long weddings. They're pretty short. I know you might get bored while I'm talking, but please, whatever you do, just keep your eyes on the bride and groom the entire time. There's, there's, have you been to, some of, you know, you've been to a wedding before and the groomsmen are like, or they start to like play with their watch or they do like the little thing with their phone where they think they're being sly and they're like, how much longer is this going to go on up here? And they're like looking at their phone and they're like not paying it. This is not about you right now. Like, can you just, I, I stood in a, I stood in a wedding one time where we're all standing there and I guess this wasn't a groomsman. This was the groom's father. The, there were a lot of, there were a lot of people in this wedding. There were like, uh, I think 12 groomsmen. So it was a big wedding and I'm standing in this wedding and in one of the photos, it looks like one of the groomsmen has his hand in the air like this because the groom's father had this little Kodak camera 
and he came up behind the groomsmen and he's up, up on stage with his little Kodak camera taking photos of the wedding. And it, it's just, a, it's a very distracting photo, but it was funny as well. But you know, you want to be paying attention. If you're a good groomsman, if you're a good bridesmaid, you're paying attention. All of your attention is on the bride and groom. You don't want to be like, oh, what's going on over here? I'm off, you know, I'm just doing my own thing right now. No, you are paying attention and taking great joy because this is your, hopefully it's your friend who's getting married and it's not a fake friend. It's your real friend who's getting married and you're really excited for them. And John's like, I take great joy in what Christ is doing. And so all of his attention, all of his action, all of his direction, everything that he is doing is focused on Christ. And he said, in that, my joy is made complete. He said, my joy is made complete that my life is moving towards Jesus and pointing to Jesus and my joy is found in him. The question to ask yourself this morning is this, where are you finding joy? Where are you looking for joy? Where are you searching for joy? And the only place that we can find joy, that it will eternally be given to us, no matter the circumstance, is in Christ. And for the direction of our life to be moving towards him, for our joy to be found in him. If we start looking for joy elsewhere, we will find that oftentimes what we're doing is we're increasing ourselves and increasing, look at me, attention on me. How can I find something for me? Because the way of Jesus is always about the other. Lastly, the last D, determined. Determined. I know, I know here in Buffalo, you know, we're, we're not as determined with the whole snow thing as we used to be. I've only lived here for 10 years. But 10 years ago when I moved up here, it's like, we don't care about snow. We'll do anything. Now I get phone calls from people three days before a snowstorm hits. Do you think we're going to be able to drive places? I'm like, this is not the Buffalo I once knew. But anyways, we'll make it through. We'll get stronger. We'll get better together. But determined. John the Baptist was determined above all else to stay committed to the kingdom calling that he had on his life. When uh, in, we get to Matthew chapter 14, we read that John was actually beheaded for doing what he was doing. And before that, we read about John in prison in Matthew chapter 11. It's a little bit of an interesting interaction that we read about here with John. I want to share this with you in, in Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? So John's in prison and he sends his followers to Jesus saying, hey, just to make sure I'm in jail for the, the right stuff here, just to make sure, because I'm probably going to lose my life, just to make sure that I got this right. Are you the Messiah we're looking for? It, John may have had some militaristic and political expectations for Jesus, just like a number of other people in Israel did. They were expecting the Messiah to bring this great military and political reign, and Jesus is doing something a little different, and now he's sitting in prison. He's like, hey, I just want to make sure I got this whole thing right here. And John's the one who baptized Jesus and then witnessed God the Father speaking over Jesus. And even he's having a moment of like, I want to make sure I got this right. Even, even those of us who have the strongest faith sometimes will have these moments where we're, we're thinking, uh, feeling a little, like even Elijah we saw last week, feeling a little shaky right now. Some people view this as a low point in John's life. I don't, I don't view it as a low point. It may have been a moment of doubt, a moment of discouragement but I also see this as a moment of determination. He is determined to do the right thing no matter the cost. 
So he sends his followers to go get clarity. I don't think he's sending his followers to, hey, maybe I can get out of this whole thing. I think he's sending his followers to, hey, I'm going to get some clarity. And if Jesus is who he says he is, I'm staying. I'm staying committed no matter the outcome. If we are going to decrease for him to increase, then we must be determined to follow him even in those moments and seasons that make absolutely no sense. Even in those those times where you're like, why do you have me here right now? John was the guy who had people flocking to him, asking him if he was the prophet of the Messiah. Now he's sitting in prison. Are we determined and committed to following Jesus and his kingdom purposes, no matter the cost? John was. He ended up losing his life for this whole thing. But I love Jesus' response to John as well. He says this to John's followers. He said, Jesus answered and said to him, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus says, go tell John this. People are seeing who couldn't see. People are hearing who couldn't hear. People are experiencing life who we thought were dead. New things are happening and God is moving in the world. And this is the type of determination that we as the church have been called to, to know that even in the moment where it doesn't feel like it's all going great for me, we can take peace in knowing that God is moving in the world and that he's changing lives, that people are coming to life, that people are seeing things they've never seen before and experiencing faith and life and hope in a brand new way. And just as Jesus declared that to John, I believe Jesus is still declaring this today, that there is hope and healing and life available for every person who turns to Jesus. Amen. That as we turn to him and move in the direction of Jesus and we decrease and allow him to increase, we will see him moving in the world in the most unexpected ways. John began to see Jesus moving in the world in the most unexpected ways, people seeing and experiencing life. But John's life statement is this. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is not just something that John declared. This is a reality that he lived. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. It's a beautiful and powerful passage from King Solomon. It's probably his life statement, probably the most famous words, his most, his most quoted words. And those words ring true today. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. The tragedy of Solomon, though, is this. Is that towards the end of his life, his words didn't match his actions. The beauty of John is that as we look at how he was different in his character and always pointing to Jesus and not pointing to self, as the direction of his life was always moving towards Jesus, and as he was determined to, the king, to, to expand the kingdom no matter the cost, as that his words lined up with who he was, he truly learned what it meant to decrease so that Christ would increase. 
Where do you need to decrease? Where do I need to decrease? Where do you need to get out of the way that you've been getting in the way? Where do I need to get out of the way that I've been getting in the way so that he may increase? Where have you been compromising and Christ is saying, no, it's time to be different. Where have you been moving in a direction that's away from the cross and Christ is calling you back to say, no, start moving towards the cross and see the life that I have for you. Where have you been, where have you been, you know, losing hope and saying, I don't know if I can keep moving forward. And Christ says, listen to my Holy Spirit within you. Follow me, stay focused, stay determined, persevere, because there's going to be something in this and it may not be for you, but it's going to be for someone else because that, because that, is what the kingdom is all about. There's another question for you to consider. What is the statement that will define your life? What is the statement that will define your life? Will it be a statement that's all about you? Will it be a statement that's all about me? Or will it be a statement like John's life statement? It's all about Jesus. And in that, it ends up being all about others. And it ends up being a life that is worth living. But I believe that if we have a life statement, a statement, what statement will define your life by those who love you the most and interact with you and see everything that you're doing? What statement will define your life? My prayer and my challenge and what I believe is that every one of us can have a life that has an eternal impact. That the work that we do for the Lord is not in vain. And that our life statement can be a statement that's not just something temporary. It's not just something self-centered. But it'll be something that is kingdom-minded. And it'll be something that has an eternal impact for generations to come.